Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Every month I get people who tell me they, uh, from other states that they're following along with our podcast every weekend. If you're one of those people and you would like to support what we're doing, you can just go to northshorevineyard.org and click on our online giving to support the work of North Shore Vineyard, and we would much appreciate it. We're going to go ahead and head to the talk right now, which is a new series we're starting called Good News People in a Bad News World, How to Live Out the Gospel in Our Everyday Lives. So let's go ahead and head to North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. called What's So Good About the Good News, where we've been looking at the basics of the gospel. And I was going to continue in that series for another couple of weeks, but then I decided, you know, I think rather than continuing in the series on the gospel, we're just going to spend a little time seeing the gospel in the New Testament and then responding to it. Because, um, you know, one, one point I've tried to make over and over is that the gospel that many of us have received uh, in, in the Western church is not really the gospel that you see in the New Testament. Now, it's got parts of it. I'm not saying it's like all bad. But typically, if you've grown up in America, the gospel was probably conveyed to you like this. Uh, Jesus died so you can go to heaven when you die. And so you pray the sinner's prayer so you can go to heaven when you die or, or not go to hell, whichever you know motivation gets you in the best. But pretty much... That's the, the gospel. Everything that Jesus did is reduced down to basically paying the price so you can go to heaven when you die. Now, what's interesting is if you look in the New Testament, you never find the, the gospel conveyed that way. You don't find when Jesus, when Jesus meets Peter by the Sea of Galilee, what does he do? Does he come up to Peter and say, Peter, hey, if you were out on that boat today and you know, a storm kicked up and you drowned, where would you spend eternity? What did, what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, follow me, right? Follow me into the work of the kingdom. Jesus, his proclamations all throughout the gospels, which, by the way, the gospels are the gospel. Um, the gospel is really just the story of Jesus. But as I said a couple of weeks ago, the gospel is not good advice on how you can get to heaven or good advice on how you can live a good life. It is good news about an actual thing that happened. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you understand that the gospel is really about God becoming king, then you're going to find that it is all over the New Testament. You'll find that gospel everywhere. And all the writings of Paul and what we're going to look at today. So what we're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at is we're going to look at the gospel in the New Testament in the different books of the Bible, and then look at the instructions for our life. In light of this event that now God has become king through the incarnation, cross, and resurrection, then how ought we live our lives? How ought we treat each other? 
How should we treat people outside the church? How do we respond to this God? How do we live as good news people in a bad news world? So that's the title of the series. Good segue, huh? So to start off with, we're going to look today at a passage from Hebrews. We read a little bit of it in the worship service this morning. But Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews chapter 12 starts off like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. I want to pause for a moment there to give you a little context. You can go and read your Bibles. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it's the hall of fame of the heroes of faith. Or the the hall of faith, so to speak. And in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, you, you have uh, stories about everybody from Abel to Enoch, Noah, Moses, Joseph, Abraham, David, the prophets. And the, and the point that he's making, the writer of Hebrews makes in chapter 11 is all these people lived righteously. They lived lives of faith that were exemplary. They got a reputation. They made it into the Bible, by the way. <laughs> we celebrate them. But... They all died without seeing what they were believing for. They all died in their faith. And that's kind of why it's really exemplary. Like they, they believe this whole time and they never got to see. But when we transition to chapter 11, the author of Hebrews is making the statement, but now what they were looking forward to, we, we actually see. Because <laughs> Jesus actually come into our world. And he is king now. So the thing that they'd been hoping for all those years throughout the Old Testament, now we have seen the fulfillment of it. We've seen the coming of Jesus. We've seen the defeat of evil on the cross. Now we await the consummation of the kingdom. So the cloud of witnesses, the crowd of witnesses that it's referring to here is this chapter 11 crowd, okay? And I used to imagine this as a young Christian is like, you know, you would, these guys would be up in heaven kind of watching us like a, a sports game. I don't know if anybody else has a messed up imagination like me, but I kind of imagine like David and Abraham and Joseph, they're up there eating popcorn and looking down through the clouds going, man, I wonder if, I wonder if Crispin's going to make it this week, you know? Oh, does he see that temptation right there? I hope he makes it this time. Dang it. Oh, man. You know, um, but really what this is getting at is not that they are witnesses to, that not like they're just looking down on us, watching us. But their lives are actually witnesses to, 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 to God and to living righteously. So they're kind of pillars of faith. So going on now, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Do we have any runners in here this morning? A bunch of slackers. Okay, yeah, we've got a couple in here. Yeah, a few. <laughs> I don't run much unless something's chasing me. <laughs> yeah. But the analogy that the author of Hebrews is using here is one from the world of athletics. If, if I decided to run a race in, in, let's say, October of this year, let's say I was, wanted to run a half marathon, that would likely, if, if I was serious about actually doing that, I would have to change a few things about my life, those of you that know me, right? I had this sandwich last week, and... 
in Tennessee. It was called the Sandwich of Pain. It was this big old fried chicken breast covered with bacon, covered with cheese. That's not the kind of food you eat when you're preparing for a, a, a half marathon, right? You discipline your body. You, you have to, to, to you, you go out there and you, you probably hang around runners. That's helpful probably, right? I mean, for those of you that run, it's, it's probably a lot more helpful to hang around people that are into that than some of us, right? You don't want to be hanging around people who eat the sandwich of pain. The Apostle Paul actually puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. He says, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing, swinging in the air. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. The Apostle Paul is, is using the same analogy from the world of athletics. You, you do certain things. You stay disciplined. But the writer in Hebrews is saying, throw off the weights that encumber yourself. So if I showed up for that, that race, that half marathon in the fall and I was dressed in a three-piece suit, that would be pretty stupid, huh? I mean, you'd be like, what are you doing? Or even if I showed up in jeans and sandals or, 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 or a big puffy jacket, you wouldn't do that, right? I'm, I mean, I don't run much, but I, I think that's probably not the outfit of choice. You show up in as little clothing as you can get away with without offending people, right? <laughs> because you want to be unencumbered. I was on the swim team in high school. And I got off the swim team about the time that, that guys started shaving their legs and, and all their body hair off. Uh, but people who are really serious about swimming and who could really swim at that level, they take it that seriously. They, they wear them little bitty bathing suits and shave everything and, and wear a swim cap so they can be aerodynamic. They don't want the weights upon them. And see, the thing is, the author of Hebrews is saying, we need to lay aside the weights that weigh us down because we need to run this race. We're in a race here. And you can't run a race if you've got all kinds of stuff you're trying to carry, if you've got inappropriate clothing or heavy clothing. And so he says we, we, we need to remove these weights that trip us up and the sin that ensnares us. But how does he say we do this? He says it like this. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So... I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but have you ever tried to deal with sin by focusing on it? <laughs> How's that work for you? It's kind of like if you put a little kid in a room filled with toys and you say, hey, you can play with whatever toy you want and just have a blast. But hey, look, by the way, I got this, this jar of cookies over here, fresh baked, out of the oven, a little bit crispy on the outside, gooey on the inside. They got those melty chocolate chips, you know, the ones that it's kind of steaming up the jar here. Don't pay any attention to that because it's not for you. You know, don't touch the cookies, but you can do anything else. What are you going to do as a kid? <laughs> Well, some of you will, will take the cookie <laughs> as soon as the adult walks out. And then those who don't will probably fantasize about the cookie the rest of the time while they're playing with the toys. And that's kind of the way that, that when it comes to sin, if you are focusing on trying not to sin, you're actually defined by the sin. 
And I spent many years as a Christian trying to defeat sin by focusing on trying not to sin. And it didn't do anything except my relationship go up and down with God. Whenever I'm doing good, then, then uh, God loves me. Whenever I'm doing bad, he hates me. I need to stay away. Up and down. The author of Hebrews says, you don't get rid of the weights and the sin in your life by focusing on those weights and sin, but by looking to Jesus. We deal with sin not by by having a sin consciousness, by, by always being characterized by looking at sin, but by looking to Jesus. See, here's the deal. We can only see the sins that we can see in our lives. You know, when I was a brand new Christian, I repented of all the obvious sins that, that, that I, I was involved in at the time, you know, and they were just like, like the basic garden variety stuff, you know. Um, but that's all the stuff that I could see. If I was left up to having to confess every kind of sin that I had, I'd be in trouble because I could only see the sin at the surface. And there was much more lethal sins, bigger sins lying beneath the surface like pride, arrogance, covetousness, stuff that I was completely blind to. I can only see that stuff when I focus on Jesus. Jesus takes care of it all as we focus on him. Y'all with me? Don't shout me down now. So we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. There's the gospel right there, people. Jesus has lived like one of us. He's gone to the cross. He's been vindicated by God. Now he is king. He's sitting. uh, He's enthroned next to God. That's the gospel. And so now he goes from this and he says, think of all the hostility that Jesus endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you've not given your lives in the struggle against sin. So again, he's, he's, he's saying, in light of the gospel, remember Jesus. When you start getting weary and tired and just think of everything that Jesus had to go through and, and, and realize that he's your priest and he's up there interceding for you. Think of him, and you won't grow weary. And then now we turn to the last part, which we're going to camp out on a bit today. Verse 5, it says, And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline, and don't be upset when he corrects you, for the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? Well, some of us have, but it wasn't so common back in that day. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and you are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us, so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But after, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. 
Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fail, will not fall, but become strong. So we have two analogies that, that are prominent, prominent, easy for me, to, prominent in this passage. The discipline that comes from training for a race and the discipline that comes as being a child of our Father in heaven. Now, I've got an issue with Hebrews. Um, I think the analogy that Hebrews uses here about a good father, it's, it's a good analogy to the extent that you've grown up with a good father who disciplined you well. But I know in this room on a Sunday morning, there are many people in here, you grew up fatherless. You, your, your father left when you were young. Perhaps your father died when you were young. Um, and, and so you've got this, you, you don't have a grid for what a father is. You know, I, I worked in the Kids Hope USA program as a mentor on the South Shore. And I mentored a couple of kids who, they weren't in abusive situations. They were just neglected. Their parents didn't care. And I got to tell you, neglect is every bit as bad as abuse. And so when we come to this thing about fathers you know, loving, it's, if you've grown up without a father, it's going to be hard to, to, to imagine that. And I know that still there's other people in here. You, you, you were abused, maybe verbally, emotionally, physically, maybe even sexually by your father. And so when we come to these passages, it can seem very confusing to, to talk about God loving us in a way where he disciplines us because it can seem, if you come out of an abuseful or neglectful situation, that imagery might not be terribly helpful to you. But here's what I want to say. Even though this analogy is problematic, I believe, for many people in here, I think we need to go back to what Hebrews says at the beginning. We look to Jesus. You want to know what our heavenly father is like? Jesus told us, told us how we could find out what he's like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus said the son only does what he sees the father doing. So you want to know how the father acts? Look at Jesus. That's one reason we study about Jesus all the time here. Because <laughs> we want to know not just what Jesus is like, but what the father's like. And so when we see Jesus eating with sinners, when we see him healing lepers, when he's, we see him doing all these miracles, guess what? We're seeing exactly what the Father is like. But Jesus got mad at his disciples on a few occasions. He, he probably count up like a, a, quite a few times where he says, whoa, you of little faith? Or when he called Peter Satan, <laughs> you know, like, get behind me, Satan. Satan. Um, <laughs> I mean, Peter, Jesus was not just all like, hey, man, I love you. I accept you. I love you unconditionally. Like, everything's cool. Sometimes he had to rebuke them. Why? Because he loved them. You know, when I consider my own children, um, I hope, you know, they're probably going to have to get some counseling down the road. But, <laughs> but I do... When I discipline them, when I have to discipline them, it's not because I'm cruel. It's because I love them. And I don't want them to grow up to be spoiled little brats. I don't want them to grow up feeling neglected. I want them to say that they have a father who's present in their life. And I'm not as present as I should be. And I don't discipline them probably as well as I should. 
But even, even in my sinful state, I'm capable of understanding this a little bit. And so the author of Hebrews says that, that when we are disciplined by God, it is not because God hates us, but because God loves us. See, there's a difference between discipline and abuse. See, abuse is cruel or violent treatment of another person. Abuse objectifies someone. It dehumanizes them. It makes them into an object. But discipline brings out the best. Discipline is about flourishing. I mean, let's go back to that analogy for a moment of, of, of athletics. Or you can apply this to art or music or whatever. If you want to get good at something, it's going to be hard. But that hard work is, is going somewhere. It's so you can flourish. And our Heavenly Father, when we are disciplined by Him, it's not because He's cruel, not because He's up there pushing the smite button, you know. Things are going a little too well for that guy today. Let's see what I can do. No. We are disciplined because God loves us. Now, what does this discipline uh, what does this discipline look like? I, I'm afraid that we have uh, a distorted understanding that I think every human being naturally brings into this world when it, when it comes to the events that happen in life. If you look at pagan religions from around the world, whether South America, Africa, East Asia, the ancient Near East, Greco-Roman religions, even Hinduism today, they all have this in common. When bad things happen to you as a human being, it's because the gods are mad at you. And if you want the gods on your side, then you need to offer some sort of sacrifice, go through some kind of ritual to appease them and curry their favor. So in, the, in ancient times, if you were going to go to war, you would make a sacrifice to Mars, the god of war, so Mars would be on your side and he would defeat your enemies. If your enemies ended up defeating you, what did that tell you? You didn't sacrifice enough. You know, maybe he put the wrong thing out there. Maybe he wasn't in the mood for barbecue. Maybe he wanted something else. In the pagan religions, if you wanted to have a child, you would sacrifice to the goddess of fertility so that, that, that you would have the blessing. But unfortunately, we bring that same mentality into Christianity. Have you ever had one of these weeks where, say, on a Monday morning, you have a flat tire on the way to work? On Tuesday, you get in a fight with your coworker. On Wednesday, you find out that there was a mis- miscommunication between you and your spouse, and, and you got a bounced check. On Thursday, you find out your daughter is sick with strep throat for the fifth time in two months. What do you start feeling about Thursday? <laughs> do you ever feel like, is God mad at me? Is he punishing me? Do I need, am, am I reading my Bible enough? Am I, am I serving enough at the church? Am I giving enough of my finances? You ever feel like that? Oh, come on. I don't think anybody's being honest up in here this morning. <laughs> a 
What this passage is telling us, though, is not to get into that pagan mindset of whenever anything goes bad to think that God's mad at us or God's distant or we need to go through some kind of sacrificial motions to to appease God and get him on our side and get him to back our agenda. Rather, when we go through hardships in life, we take them as sons and daughters who are loved by God. I do not believe that every bad thing in life comes from God. Some of the stuff that we face in life just comes from we live in a broken, messed up world. Sometimes it's the attack of the enemy. And sometimes God lets us into situations because he is disciplining us. But what I, what I want to say here, I don't want you to live in fear of like, hey, God, is, you know, you're mad at me. No, what I'm trying to get at is that there is a posture with which you can face life. Everyone in here will go through difficult times. Sometimes you will go through difficult times because it's just a messed up world. Sometimes you will face resistance in your life because you're following Jesus. Sometimes you will face resistance because it's an attack. But here's the thing. None of us will be exempt from hard times. But the real battle is not the hard times themselves. It's the choice of of, of how we're going to... Uh, respond to those hard times? Will we face these hard times as if God is just out there, he doesn't care, he's our enemy, he, he needs to be appeased, or we don't like what he's doing, we're bitter, and we hate if there's a God and we're not a big fan, or will we face these things as sons and daughters who believe we are loved by God? The most formative experiences of our lives are not the trials themselves, but how we respond to those difficulties. So I'll give you just a couple of examples from my own life. It was probably 17 and a half years ago where this really began to be true in my life. I'd been in ministry for six or seven years in college ministry. I'd read books about marriage. I had listened to James Dobson and Family Life Today. I figured, like, how hard is this thing going to be? I love God. She loves God. We love each other. We're going to be sharing the bills, living together, and all the things that come with that. And I thought marriage was not going to be too bad. And then about three days into our honeymoon, I realized there's a little bit more to this marriage thing than I think I bargained for. And really, within just a matter of weeks, I hear all these people, and bless you if you had this experience, if you had the whole, like, we loved each other, like, intensely for for the first couple of years, like, that's great, I'm happy for you. That was not our particular experience. It was like sleeping with the enemy, except not, it really, that's a bad reference, okay, Um, if you've actually seen the movie, it wasn't like that at all. (laughs) It was like the title. (laughs) Oh, uh, but really within just a couple of weeks of being married, like I'm thinking there is no chance in hell that this thing's going to work out. This is a mess. But what did marriage begin to reveal to me? Oh, now marriage began to reveal to me that I wasn't as loving or as patient, as kind, as long suffering or as spiritual as I had led myself to believe in all those years of being in ministry as a single guy. <laughs> Quickly. <laughs> Did I get an amen from Dina back there? <laughs> Testify. Oh, now you pre- I love this message, Crispin. 
Go on with that. I mean, really, I, I realized I, I'm, I'm, my, my, my prayer life got whittled down from, I used to be, you know, have these very long prayer times in the morning. My prayers got whittled down to the variety of, God, please. <laughs> Help. <laughs> you know you're in a good place with God when your prayer life gets whittled down to like three syllables. That's, uh, and, and, and yet, as hard as it was, I mean, it really, our first two years were intensely hard. But it took us about five years to like actually like each other again. I don't know how the heck we stayed together. But I do know something that changed in the middle of it with me. Is that I started taking the posture of a son and a student. Saying, God, what do you have to show me here? And what do you know? God had all kinds of things to show me. And he still does. And I can look over the past 20 years, we've gone through difficult times, probably nothing compared to what some of you have gone through. We've had miscarriages. We've gone through toxic situations at churches. You know, I was a part of a church for four years where I was, I, I was in ministry there. But the more that I've moved away from that church and found out about what cults are like, I realized, like, ah, that was pretty much like a cult. But the, the leadership was very authoritarian, manipulative, controlling. And I remember for two years after I left that place, how every time I would try to pray in the morning, I would think of this guy who hurt me every day. And I just kept saying, God, I don't want bitterness to get in my heart. <sighs> but I can't think of anything else to talk to you about. Help me forgive, Lord. Help me let this guy go. And over time, God did that. But here's the deal. Whatever your situations you're facing are, we all face junk. And I know some people in here, you face things that I would never want to face, ever. The question is not whether we will face hard stuff. The question is, what is our posture going to be? Will we, will we come to the Lord and say, God, what do you want to show me right now? What in my heart needs your touch? Richard Rohr, Franciscan uh, priest, monk guy, I love this, uh, this quote. He said, uh, he said this on several occasions. He said, transformation in our Christian walk only happens through either great, great love or great suffering. And for most people, it's great suffering. Think about your own life. <laughs> I know as a, as a young charismatic, I, I, I would come up to the front for the altar calls at the end because I wanted to have that powerful thing that God would do where nobody had to know what I was struggling with. And, and they could just pray for me, and God would show up, and then boom, it'd be over. But I've found in my 20 years, yes, I've had a few times where I've been in a church service, and I've encountered God in a powerful way. But I would say that most of the transformation in my life has happened through trials, through hardship. Because hardships have a way of revealing junk in our hearts that we don't see. And what I've come to see over the years is the hardest things that I've experienced with God have been for my good. 
Because God loved me enough to let me go through it. Now, I don't think God is endorsing. If you're in an abuseful situation right now, I, listen to this. God is not, he is not for abuse. But I tell you, even if you have been abused, God can bring something beautiful out of the dust. He can bring his life from the worst situations that you've ever gone through. But we've got to renew our thinking about who God is. He's not the one that, that, that is ashamed of you or hates you or is mad every time you fall down. See, the thing is, I think what's important with this whole analogy of running a race is not that we just run this race perfectly and that we never fall down, but that we keep getting back up. Keep getting back up. God, I blew it. <laughs> I blew it, Lord. I won't get back up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep looking to Jesus. How you respond to difficulties, to hardships, to suffering will take you in one way or the other. Our comebacks, when we get back up and start running, it sculpts our soul. It shapes us. When you don't give up, when you don't get weary and lose heart and just run away and think God hates you, but when you keep going, it sculpts you, it changes you, it transforms you. You can never outmaneuver the grace of God, so get up and run the race set before you. See, what directs your response to hardship has everything to do with where you place your faith. Because you will place your faith in something. You can't help it. <laughs> you may place your faith in your own failure. That's like negative faith, anti-faith. <laughs> you may place your belief, your, 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 your faith in your life may be placed towards, I'm damaged goods, I'm, I'm messed up, God can never use me again. You may place your faith there. Or you can place your faith in Jesus. You can place your faith in your mistakes and failures and say that this is what defines me. Or you can look to the Lord and his grace and say, I'm going to let you, Jesus, and your goodness define who I am. I want to read a couple of crazy passages from the New Testament to you here real quick. Lest you think this is just something that I'm making up or some weird interpretation I came up with in Hebrews. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Hallelujah! Put that on your refrigerator. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Oh, man, I bounced that check. Flat tire. Glory to God. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Oh, that's good stuff there. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as a fire test and purifies gold. Though your faith is more 
far more precious than mere gold. You see a theme here? Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems. You see this? Like, like we can get excited, joyful when we come into problems. I don't think y'all are hearing me. For we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loved us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. See, this is the good news. You want to be good news people? This is it. God is with us in our suffering. And if we will go through suffering as sons and daughters of the Most High God, we can can learn from God even in the midst of the hardest things that we are going through. So I want to close with a couple of reflection questions today. Let's just take a moment and I want you to think over your life and think of a few experiences in your life of faith where you have been transformed during times of hardship. Secondly, how have you struggled in understanding God's love during times of felt expectations and trials? And the final question that I want us to consider today is, where are you being invited by the Spirit to surrender your attachment to a particular expectation and to instead trust God? Where do you feel the invitation of the Spirit this morning? Morning to surrender your attachment to a particular expectation or outcome and to trust God. Now, the last thing I want to say this morning is that 
this analogy that Hebrews is getting at, it's very helpful for us as individuals to see ourselves as sons and daughters of God. But you know, it also leaves us in the place where we're brothers and sisters with one another. And God has not invited any of us to go through suffering alone. He's not only given us his spirit, but he's given us family. So this morning, I want to close in kind of a different way than we typically do. And if you're just in a rough spot this day, and you need some people to just agree with you to to pray blessings upon you so that you can find God in the midst of where you're at today. I'd like you to just stand up if it's not too awkward and we just want to pray with you. Just stand up wherever you're at. You just need some, some, some family to pray for you this morning. We don't even have to know what you're going through. Anybody else? Just stand up. All right. We're all family here. Ain't no need to be ashamed. Now, if you're near somebody that's standing up, I just want you to uh, extend your hand to them. And we're just going to pray a blessing upon all these who, who, who need God to come through. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Right now, God, we mm. well, right now we stand against the accusations of the enemy. the accusing voices, Lord, that, 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 that say that everything's going to fall apart, that God is far from you. The discouragement, the anxiety. Lord, we just say right now, you are for us and not against us. You are with us and not removed from us. God, we pray right now for the strength of God to rise in the hearts of your people. Those who are weak and weary this morning right now, that they would be refreshed by the power of your spirit, by your presence right now, this moment, God. Lord, I pray you would give the grace to each one of these people that need it right now to turn their eyes to you, Jesus, to see you instead of seeing the things right in front of them, to see you as bigger, Lord. 
God, I pray that those who have failed, those who have, have, have uh, just keep falling down, God, that you would give them the grace to stand up and just keep going, Lord. Lord, we just bless your people with peace, with mercy, with help, with grace for the journey right now. Be strengthened in the name of Jesus. Be strengthened in the name of Jesus. And Lord, right now, for every person standing up, I know there is a situation behind every person, Lord, and we, we lift these situations up to you right now. Whether family situations or work situations or financial situations, housing situations, uh, physical illnesses, God, we lift them up to you right now, God. We say, come, Lord. We give these situations to you right now. We trust them to you. We say, God, have your way in these things, Lord. Let your kingdom come in these situations, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. And God, right now, we take our hands off and we give them to you, Lord. And we trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you didn't get enough prayer and you want some more, you can come up here to the front and our prayer team will be up here. Otherwise, thank you all so much for being with us here this morning. God bless you. See you next weekend.